This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who aren't done yet. You may have seen the worst of aging and are hoping there's a better way. There is, and I'm going to show you how. In interviews, book reviews, rants, and stories each week, I'm going to bring you the latest science-based info on how to age better. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. It pisses me off, and it's BS. Look, aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome back, everybody. You know, I'm always so grateful for my listeners who show up week after week to get this great information. Today is just like every other episode, full of juicy stuff, no matter where you are in the aging journey. My guest today is Dr. Angela Cortal, and she is an expert in pain relief, in going from degeneration to regeneration of joints and problems in the body. So Dr. Cortal, welcome and thank you for being here. Well, thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Good. So Dr. Angela is an Oregon-based naturopath who has made it her mission to change how we approach and treat chronic joint pain by reversing the causes. Now, this is a little bit different. Last week, we talked about a guy who adjusts your movements to get some relief from pain. We're talking about reversing the causes of things like arthritis one joint at a time. And I know that from reading about you, Dr. Cortal, that this was a personal thing. This started because you were thrown into this situation that you needed to get handled. Tell us about it. Yes. So I was a, a very, a very young adult, barely an adult. I think about 19 years old. And in Oregon, skiing is a very common winter sport. And I grew up skiing with my family. And I was out on this particular day out with some friends and hit a block of ice that is not easy to see in in the surrounding field of snow. Blocks of ice uh, can hide and just hit it just right or just wrong with my ski and kind of went went down instantly. And uh, with, within that week, found out that I had torn my ACL, which is one of the main ligaments in the knee that kind of holds everything together stability-wise. Went into surgery all, all within that week, kind of a whirlwind experience. Wow. And the surgeon fixed what, what, they, what needed to be fixed. But I was sort of, I went into this track of, although I was a, a compliant patient, quote unquote, compliant patient, as we, as we talk about, you know, I, I did all the physical therapy and took the medications and, and everything that I was recommended. I had just quite a lot of lingering issues with my knee still being really weak and it would give out on me. And there was quite a lot of chronic pain. I was on, I was prescribed just about every type of pain medication out there. This was a few decades ago. Mm. Um, so even, even the more heavier duty painkillers were, were also used a little more liberally at that time and just really feeling stuck as the years went on and things did not get better. And in fact, it seemed like they were worse. I was grasping, grasping at anything and everything out there to try and, uh, and get my knee to heal, get, get my body to feel better. This was all through my twenties. And I thought I'm too young to feel like I'm very old, which I did. I felt, I felt very debilitated and very elderly at the age of say 23, 24 and decided to just look into a fast forward a couple of years, 
still more or less holding the same. I'm going through medical school and then starting my, my medical practice and thinking like, what, what else is there? What, what have I not looked into and found my way via regenerative injection therapies and then studying what some of the very smart doctors in this field were saying that you really have to look at the whole person not just the injection therapies and, and piecing together that over, over a series of years, finding out that there's a lot more to joints than just you know wearing and tearing and, and falling apart. And I'm, I'm so glad that you already had someone speaking about mobility, mobilization, and so my, my real key piece, the, the part that I'm a cheerleader about is looking at all of the systemic influences, we'd say, like someone's overall health and what's going on there, because there's some really, really key factors that I found personally for myself that was stopping my knee from healing. It wanted to and was trying the whole time and just was prevented from doing so. And so that's my big work of my private practice with patients and ed- and online education generally is so many factors that we can look into that it's just a matter of finding out which which are key for for each individual person. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the individual part because it's there is no one way to heal. Even if one therapy works for 95% of the population, there might be that 5% it's not going to, or one diet might really, really relieve certain conditions in the body of one person. And not the next person. So you have a favorite way of feeding the body so that it can be well enough to heal and do its thing. I mean, it does, like you said, your knee was trying to heal. Our bodies are self-healing machines if we give them what they need. What is it that you find is helpful for people with pain? That's a great question. So when it comes to chronic pain, chronic joint pain, and what we eat, <laughs> what we do and don't put into our bodies every day, I like to think a bit uh, like our nutrition is our building blocks. So what, what are we putting in as far as our, our meals and foods will help or hinder our, our body, our, our joints and ligaments, tendons, all that musculoskeletal tissue? It needs certain building blocks to heal. So, so I, I break things down into categories of what do we need to make sure you have enough of that might be deficient? And then what are some things that might be found in excess that are actually doing potential damage. And so the, 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 the enough of category, I think of generally speaking, protein levels, a lot of people, and I find very commonly in women when we're actually doing very detailed diet diaries or tracking their protein intake on, there's all sorts of uh, apps nowadays that can do that, is that we see Depending on someone's body structure, their weight, and what's going on with them, like are they are they trying to build up muscle because they're in an athletic performance field, or are they experiencing a chronic injury, something that's not healing, and we need to make sure they have enough protein to heal from that. So, so we do, and we see this in research. There's very specific amounts of protein that are our bare minimum. And if we're not getting that, then, then things will just not be healing because there's all sorts of other just cell turnover and recovery that we need in our, in our body from a, a day-to-day life. And if it's just a chronic nagging shoulder or elbow or hip thing, <laughs> uh, you know, just a nagging thing, yeah. then, then it might always be pushed to the wayside if, uh, if someone just day in and day out isn't, isn't eating uh, adequate protein levels. Specifically within that protein subject, collagen is a is a big piece and something that I really commonly talk about. And I re- I recommend if someone is 
is looking for a additional protein source. And the reason for that is that collagen is a unique grouping of some amino acids, which are the, the little tiny building blocks of proteins. And we need collagen to build up cartilage tissue, ligament tissue, tendon tissue, if someone is healing from a fracture. So the, so the bone tissue itself is knitting back together. All of those things, if we look on a microscopic level, are predominantly made of collagen. So if there is uh, no collagen in someone's diet, then we're relying 100% on someone's body to kind of take the amino acids from other places and put them together to, to regenerate that cartilage or, or ligament tissue, whatever. And that I find even, I would say in the US, it's very common even for us omnivorous people to never eat collagen. It's just not a part of our cultural dietary uh, menu. And so paying attention to that by incorporating specific foods that are rich in collagen or, or using the supplementation is something that I'm using pretty commonly. Now, would bone broth be considered a collagen source? It, it is. Yeah, I would, I would consider it when you look at like the, the grams of collagen, for example, it's a little more modest than I would say the often foods that are made with, I mean, just to be honest, like knuckles and joints of, of animals, you know, chicken feet and pig feet and something like that. For a lot of Americans, they're like, ew, <laughs> but very common food. Those are very high collagen foods because like I just said, the ligaments and the tendons are very high in collagen in humans. And, and that, that rule also applies to, to other animals, <laughs> I guess you can say as well. So for only eating, you know, hamburgers and steaks and things like that, that are more typical in the U.S. And that's just the, the muscle meat of the animals to get down to it. Um, they're, they're not as rich in collagen. So yeah, any, anywhere across that spectrum. And, and I'm often saying to patients when you're, when you're cooking that food and it, and like gels and congeals when it's cold in your fridge, you know, that has a good bit of collagen to it. Exactly. I have some venison stew on in the cooker right now. And of course, venison is lean. So it's not that we're looking for fat, we're looking for collagen, but I make stock out of the bones before I add the liquid to the meat and the vegetables. So I feel like I am because it will be nice and it'll be like a brick when it comes out of the fridge, you know, after it's cooked. Yes. So I know I've got a good supply in there. Yeah. So, so that's a great way of you're, you're starting with something that is rich in protein, but maybe not specifically collagen. And then with the bone, the bone broth addition, yeah, I mean our our bones, bones in general are are predominantly collagen fibers. If if you if you look down on the the microscopic level, so if you're doing that extract with with the broth, with you know most people are cooking it for twelve hours, twenty four hours, something like that, then then you're getting a lot of that out. So we've got protein, we've got collagen. On the, this is now we're still in the category of what we should have enough of. Yep. What what to make sure that you're not deficient in? Yes. Yeah. For some people, healthy fats, that is a little bit more individualized, just depending on what, if any, meat sources are in someone's diet, what other sources of like omega-3 fatty acids, for example, is, is present in, in our diet. So, so that, that one is a little bit more varied, but often something that can at least be, if not the key piece, there's really no harm in, in thinking about where am I getting any essential fatty acids in my diet? Does it, do we have sufficient sources here? Where can we add some, some more of that in? Then on the other side of what can be potentially found in excess that's specifically 
damaging to joints, to accelerating osteoarthritis, to sort of putting the brakes on joint regeneration. A lot of it is around blood sugar regulation and insulin regulation. And so as a general sort of hormonal concept, insulin resistance and and markers of insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome are very common in the U.S., although it takes three of the established eight markers of metabolic syndrome for someone to get that diagnosis. Seven out of eight adults in the U.S. have at least one of those markers, which are relating to a lot of different chronic diseases like blood pressure, blood sugar. It's, it's something that you'd go to your doctor to see if you have that diagnosis. But the concept is very prolific. There's a lot of metabolic unwellness in, in the U.S. population, in other similar populations. And what that leads to is higher blood sugars that we can pick up on labs, but specific to joint health, the insulin resistance that develops actually creates a, an insulin excess that is sort of spilled over, so to speak, into the actual joint tissue itself. And in wow. research, they, they, they can test this. They can, they can do sampling of the joint tissue. They can find this. And that hyperinsulin state within the joint is its own sort of irritation and inflammatory trigger. Hmm. So it's different than systemic inflammation. It's literally going into the joint and creating its own little havoc. Yes. And, and systemic inflammation. Also, we can see a number of other inflammatory markers. With that, we'd be talking about adipokine, so fat tissue-derived inflammatory markers. So one, one layer after the other of, of inflammation. And yes, joints are sensitive to that. And these are not short-term states. These are usually conditions that are happening over years and decades. And so there's just that cumulative effect where that for some people can be a major reason why, they're, why they got arthritis diagnosis at an earlier age than their friends or family members or something like that. And, and why it seems to be continuing despite all the you know good things that they think they're doing. Like, I, I thought I was eating well and I thought I was exercising, but maybe for them, their blood sugar, for example, if their blood sugar is still high, then that insulin resistance is still continuing. And now we can, I mean, diabetics are given blood sugar monitors, little finger pricks, right? But now I know there are continuous blood sugar monitoring devices that you actually, I guess, like push into your skin and yep. some are still given by doctors for diabetics, but it's a little bit trendy right now to have these things put into your system and read all throughout the day. It's, it's really amazing watching the data of a person. I've been following this one woman, even exercise, which I didn't know can raise our blood sugar. But I would say that's not a bad way to have it. But if it comes back down right away, as your heart rate comes down, it comes down. That's what naturally should happen after we eat, right? You eat, blood sugar goes up within 90 minutes-ish. It should return to whatever is your baseline. I have one on my bucket list soon to get one of those just to have fun. Because, you know, I know the dangers of high blood sugar. I don't have high A1C. I don't have any of these problems now. But I know as we get older, things tend to creep. And I want to be aware of what are those things. You know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be eating apples every morning for breakfast. I love them. Maybe it's just not a good food for me, right? So those kinds of things, just interesting data to have. So now, go ahead. You were going to say something. Oh, I, the, the continuous glucose monitors, the CGMs, I'm also a big fan of them. And right. yes, they're sort of a, a popular in the biohacker world yeah. thing. And, but, I, but I think with good reason, 
as a physician, my experience is I can only get the insurances to cover them for my patients who are diabetic and are poorly controlled, which is its own category of lab results. But if I had my way, I would say anyone who wants to check into this, you know, like we do annual exams and and check-ins and, and you know, mammograms passed. We, we have the, these kind of screening preventive medicine tools. And I would say CGM, I hope in the future is seen more like that hmm. because it really gives us the information we can't get otherwise, which is how is my body reacting to what I'm doing through the course of the day, what I'm, you know, yes, exercising or not, even sleep can, sleep, you know, yeah. good sleep can help your CGM, your, your glucose numbers. Or interrupted sleep can worsen them, infections and, and, and other sort of acute injuries. And then, of course, food. And that I, I can talk in a general sense with patients about, and, and we touched on earlier, like the macronutrients, the proteins, the fats, the carbohydrates. But even, even within that, it's like all the food goes into sort of a, a black box, so to speak, of how does that person break down those foods? Because with CGM research, we see that individual people react differently. So someone's blood sugar may spike from apples, but then someone else might not. And it's popcorn more than yeah. rice, you know, even, even if the carbs, so to speak, are, are the same in, the, in each of those foods. Yes. And I, I think, and I don't want to get too far off of, I want to hear about your therapies. <laughs> I think the future of, I will say wellness care is individual testing, genetic testing by reputable people who can help you read the thing and not just like they do every genetic blip on the thing and then they tell you you're going to get cancer you might get diabetes or you're i don't believe in that kind of thing but i do think we're moving in the direction and hopefully it will become affordable for people to have these individual tests to show them and so that we can prevent more prescriptions and more procedures and amputations and things anyway let's go tell people now we've sort of like done the drum roll and we haven't gotten to the point about how you're going to relieve the pain. So we know that there's a body part, there's eating, there's all these things. What about your particular kind of therapies and treatments for people with chronic pain? Tell us about them. Sure. So we, so we jumped off of movement, exercise, mobility, nutrition. We're kind of, we're kind of building, building out, go, going up the ramp so additional things that I check in, the other sort of boxes to check, so to speak, in terms of other systemic or just body-wide influences are hormone levels. We, we briefly touched on inflammation levels. So hormone levels specifically, if someone has a deficiency in certain types of hormones, we do see that they get an earlier arthritis diagnosis mm. and that it accelerates faster. So they go from mild to moderate to severe in less years than someone who does not have that same hormonal deficiency. We also see it's more, more likely, more prevalent that folks with certain hormonal deficiencies get more joint replacement surgeries. So that's kind of all under the same topic of joint uh, hormones matter when, it, when, it, when we're talking about chronic joint pain and degenerative joint diseases. The top hormones that I see again and again in the research are thyroid levels and estrogen and testosterone. Progesterone is another what we'd call of a, a sex hormone going along with the estrogen and the testosterone. There's some information out there about pain levels generally, but it's really the thyroid and estrogen and testosterone that we see most closely linked to the timeline, the timeline and the progression of someone's uh, joint degeneration. So interesting. I, I interviewed a woman a couple of weeks ago on thyroid. She's a thyroid expert. 
she did mention the relationship. We didn't have time to go into it. It's not really her specialty, the relationship of pain and arthritis and development of things. But she did say that it's one of the key hormones to look if you are suffering with certain things, make sure you get the right tests so that you can see where you are on the profile of health or lack. And then... And then, so then going off of that, certain supplementation, I mentioned collagen, essential fatty acids, and regenerative injection therapies is the other specialty of my practice. I use two called prolotherapy and platelet-rich plasma injections. And what these are, how I explain them is, although they can feel like magic, sometimes they're not magic, they're communication. And so via my appointment, my work with patients, talking with them, doing the physical exam, we're honing in on what are the specific sites that are just lagging in terms of healing, like they're lingering injuries, they're just not getting better, there's degeneration present. And so we apply the the injection specifically to those spots, which is also a very individualized manner. No two cases of knee pain or hip pain or shoulder pain might have the exact same sources of pain because there's so many different specific structures within each of those joints. I don't just think of a knee. I think of, well, there's the intraarticular inside of the knee joint. We have the cartilage, the rolling surfaces of the bones in there. Then we have the joint capsule. Then we have all the ligaments, tendons, muscles, and nerves in the area can also be sources of pain. So for each person really getting specific, identifying what are your sources of pain, where is your pain coming from? so that we can figure out, uh, would someone be a good candidate for this therapy of, of doing the injection therapies to those sites and really just helping, helping that area heal. They mimic what's called a stem cell migration signal, which is just a, a fancy term of, of saying we're kind of tricking the body. Again, kind of getting back into the biohacking, we are mimicking the same signals that a new fresh injury tells the body like, hey, we just got injured here. <laughs> hey, you just sprained your ankle, something like that. And the immune system and all of the growth factors then are sort of magnetized, almost coalescing around that area and reinitiating the healing cascade. Interesting. Interesting. Now, I have to mention that PRP is also used for facial rejuvenation. And it's called the vampire facial because, yes. of course, they're using your own blood. Explain a little about PRP because I, I think we ran that those letters by, but I don't think you explained it. I'll say that the, the action is more or less similar, comparable. So although I'm not an aesthetic, I don't do like skincare really. I'm more of a orthopedic sports medicine joint pain kind of a provider. But the underlying reason why they work is, is the same as that they're stimulating collagen regeneration, collagen fibers inside of the, the cartilage tissue or collagen fibers inside of someone's skin. The visit, the PRP, platelet-rich plasma, the PRP visit starts with a blood draw because we need to get those platelets that are that's naturally in our, in our bloodstream. And so then that is processed during the visit and the red blood cells and white blood cells for the most part are taken out and it's concentrated down so that what we, what we have left for, the, for the, what we're actually doing, the injection is platelets and growth factors that are then in, injected into the sites that are needed, like, for example, um, a ligament connection. And does this provide immediate relief? Is this sort of like in three to five days you might feel better? What's the... There's a, a little difference between the prolotherapy and the PRP. And I'll say that I use 
anesthetic, so numbing agents while I'm doing the injection. So there's an immediate numbing, yeah. like if anyone who's gone to the dentist and you know you 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 feel that numb right away, but that's not the therapeutic. I guess it's therapeutic in that it makes the injections more comfortable, yeah. but it's not the real thing we're going for. And that's that reinitiating the healing cascade. It's a cumulative process because it's just piggybacking on our own natural timeline for, for healing, for healing those tissues, those cartilage, ligament, tendon tissues. And so with prolotherapy, it's about three to four weeks out. We're seeing more or less the, the majority of the effect of the treatment. With PRP, it's a little bit longer. So someone may not notice really anything at all for a solid month. And that's not too unusual for the PRP. It's really more like six to eight weeks out. So it can be kind of slow, slow, slow improvement. And then finally, that month one to month two post-injection, we're, we're really seeing the, the big bump in what, whatever we're looking for for each individual person's specific sites of pain, laxity, like excess motion instability of a, of a joint biomechanics of, of the joints. Now, do you, I know that you do not facilitate, but do you prescribe somebody have some sort of exercise modification during these times or they just go about their normal day? It's very good practice. It's, there's a, a, a decent sense of there's some common sense of like not overexerting yourself, not going into some intense injection regimen and then, you know, going for a marathon the next week, something <laughs> like that. I talk to patients about if I know their type of exercise regimen and I'm familiar with certain modifications that they may want to make within the, the early phase of healing, the, those first three weeks. So I will often start the conversation and then match them up with someone that may be a more appropriate athletic coach or sports medicine focused chiropractor or physical therapist or someone like that if, to, to do that more kind of long-term game plan with them. Since one of your goals is for people is to go from degeneration to regeneration, is there an ongoing series of treatments for people to get to the, so one, you start the regeneration, do they need continuous? And then if they stop coming to someone like you, will it backslide? That's a really good question. And I, and I do these injection therapies because they are... I don't think of them as, as maintenance, uh, as a maintenance type of treatment. Someone may go to and get chiropractic once a month or something like that. And they're doing this ongoing maintenance treatment, the regenerative injection therapies. I don't view it and I don't see it like that at all. Okay. I think of it actually more in terms of we do an initial series of treatment. And for one person, that may be one visit for another person that may be two or three in a, in a row within a, within a, a certain set of weeks or, or a short number of months. And then we see they're, they're pretty much good. <laughs> I try to establish for each person what their goals are. And through that initial series of treatment, we're trying to meet all the goals that we possibly can. And then they hold the injection therapies. The whole idea is that we have reversed that chronic lingering injury. We've gotten a deeper level of healing that just wasn't happening previously. And then they should go out and live their life. And they do. And I don't see patients... I'll, I'll see them for a short period of time. And then I don't see them until, I don't know, maybe they overdo it, have a tumble on a snowboard, something, something that, that brings them back into, into my office because now there's, there's a different <laughs> body part that's, that's yeah. now injured. But generally, they hold. If someone is 
getting these treatments and they feel like they're doing great, but they're going back to square one every three months, my, my, my mind's going off thinking, what, what are they missing? Going back to some of those earlier steps, is there like a hormone deficiency that's preventing that person from actually healing and being able to, to retain the benefit of that treatment? I'm really curious if, uh, if, they're, if they're not holding. And, and in research, we see this as well. They'll follow people one or even two years post, uh, post the, the injection series, and they're, all, all the benefits are, are retained. So why are you and your fellow practitioners the best kept secrets on the planet? <laughs> there is not that many practitioners who get into this particular type of field who draw lines between our systemic, our overall health and the injection therapies. I, I think it just may be a little bit more common for, well, I mean, we have our standard of care approach or, you know, if it hurts, give you some ibuprofen and then a physical therapy referral. And if that's not working, then, then you're seeing the surgeon. So we, so we got that approach that that's overrepresented <laughs> out there. Oh, yes. And then in certain fields in my own naturopathic medicine and functional medicine, I think most practitioners are aware of sort of the, the overall whole body piece, mm-hmm. the, the injection therapies themselves take a long time to learn. This is after we get our doctorate. So a lot of providers are probably not interested in yet more, <laughs> more and more schooling. It takes years to yeah. get good at this. So to connect all those dots is, is a, our, our professional organizations are, are relatively small. They're, they're, they're wonderful, spectacular providers, but we're definitely vastly outnumbered by you know, the, the conventional orthopedic provider number. I wonder when that cloning thing is going to get big enough that we can use it on people like you, because I, I can't even, I, I have friends that have chronic pain. And I, I mentioned earlier, I'm going to see one tomorrow and we usually walk for miles on the boardwalk. She happens to live near the beach. And she texted me and said, I won't be able to walk tomorrow, but we can sit because the benches are back. And that just makes me sad for her. I don't, I could visit with her sitting or walking. It doesn't matter, but she's just her pain in her knees. You know, she's looking at surgeons. So I said, don't call a doctor till I speak to the woman I'm interviewing this afternoon. Because if there's an alternative, I don't know anybody that would want to have major surgery if they could not mm-hmm. have major surgery. Yeah. So what would you tell somebody to the, the average skeptical 60 something, especially a woman who she would say, you know, I'm not this type. I don't go to your kind of doctor. I want my, you know, my physician has to approve whatever we talk about. What would you say mm-hmm. to that woman? First, I like I like healthy dose of skepticism. I think that's important for us to not just take word for it any anywhere in you know anywhere and everywhere that we might get information about what to do here. So I definitely welcome that. And what what I would say is that a lot of if someone, for example, is talking over treatment options with their primary care general physician. They may not be aware of the huge body of research that the regenerative injection therapies have. Just looking at, for example, knee osteoarthritis and prolotherapy, there's thousands of studies out there on PubMed. And the meta-analyses, the, the systematic reviews of just thousands of patients going, going through these studies shows that for the most part, they're, they're really reliably effective if we've first made sure that someone is a proper candidate. And in my book, that also means then assessing 
nutritional and metabolic and hormonal inflammatory markers, all of, all of those pieces, putting together for each person an individualized, like, what are we wanting to start on first, which for one patient may be blood sugar. For another, it may be a different kind of nutritional modification or, or getting, getting them moving. And I do have patients sometimes that are coming to me and they are just gung ho ready for the injection therapies. First visit, like they're like, we got to do this right now. We got to do this as of yesterday. And I understand the motivation because I've been in some of the most severe pain and joint pain and all of that possible. So, so I've lived it and I understand it. And so how I'm often strategizing with patients is if we take a couple of weeks and for some of these, maybe three, six, eight weeks, and at least lay a better foundation for you, then we can step into the injection therapies. And I'm much more confident you'll have a, a better, more robust response from, from the injection treatments versus if we just go, go right into it and leave some of these other deficiencies or something like that um, r- remaining. So, so th- that, that's a big piece is kind of putting together the plan and. I would say just in my, I've been practicing for eight years and that I encounter a lot of primary care doctors, family medicine, internal medicine physicians that are more than happy to work with me. I don't see it as us versus them. They don't see it as us versus them. They see it as, yeah, we, we have these couple of tools for, for those with chronic joint pain. For some, they work. But they see that for a lot of patients, it doesn't. Like they, they're, they're just as frustrated <laughs> as, as I am that it's often just a matter of if, if a doctor really is not familiar with sharing a couple of studies, if, if they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know what, what kind of injection for your hip. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. It's often just, hey, look, look at the couple of meta-analyses, thousands of patients, look at the response they got from their hip osteoarthritis. And then it's always an individualized risk versus benefits. With the, these types of regenerative injection therapies, the, the risk is very low if, if we're making proper patient selection, of course, versus the potential for benefit is, is huge, is massive, is, keeps, me, keeps me moving, keeps me active. And also for, for many, many of my patients, the, the same. That's great. And people can go to your website, which I believe is Dr. Angela. Cortal, C-O-R-T-A-L.com. It doesn't have my first name. It's just Dr. Cortal. Dr. Cortal. Okay. Because you do have, you can click on links and read articles and studies that talk about PRP and prolotherapy if people wanted to do it that way. You also have a book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Younger Joints Today. And I published that last year. And congratulations. Sort of. Thank you. Thank you. Kind of, kind of unusual time for everything, including book, book publishing. That was a July of last year. And that's sort of my manifesto, I guess we could say on everything that we've been talking about. So I go through and have um, sort of pieced together everything that we're reviewing into seven specific steps that I go through in my mind. And again, this is individualized, so I'm not doing all of them for every patient, but we're at least thinking through them. And, and that's really just sharing my perspective and my clinical experience and a whole bunch of research citations for those that do want to hit the book, so to speak, to be able to see what and how I, I go through this process with patients. And is it available on Amazon? Yes. Okay, great. And if people don't happen to live in Oregon near you, what is their next best option? How do they find somebody like you? A couple of things I can mention. So one, my professional organization 
It has kind of like a long acronym. It's A-O-A-P-R-M, but their website is prolotherapycollege.org. And this is a professional association of those who are doing prolotherapy and other regenerative type of injection therapies. For the most part, this is from, I would say, functional medicine, osteopathic doctors, and also naturopathic doctors like myself and, and medical doctors who are all very integratively minded. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think how, how I work and how I think my whole treatment philosophy is shared with, with this organization. So that's a, a good one for people across the U.S. and also in other countries to look at their directory and potentially find someone that's close to you. Another resource that I have is every couple of months, I lead an online group education that is a month long. And we go through some of these major pillars that we're talking about in terms of this is all the patient education that I have sort of encapsulated from my, my many, many patients that, that we work through this of people going through this group process can bring their own labs, their own imaging and really learn how can they look at what's been investigated for themselves. And for, for some people, it's, it's figuring out and, and really putting their finger on, oh, okay, that, that's, that's what that MRI meant. Like, I, I never really understood it. I didn't really know what they were looking at on those labs. And so, so we're going through a lot of the investigative work that I, that I find that anyone can learn just for their own self and, and figure out what investigation has been looked at for me. What has not been looked at? Where, where can I go from here? What can I bring to my to my doctors next time we're talking about labs, for example. And that's called Foundations of Resilience. And you can find it through my, my website. It's also drcortal.com slash foundations. And so we, we lead that live every couple of months. And whenever it's not live, then, you, then it has a, a wait list sign up that, that you can oh, find on great. the page. That's great. Because more information, the better for a person. I know myself, others feel intimidated sometimes. And I'm a crazy researcher and I'm willing to talk to my doctor, but there are times when I stumble and I forget and then I'm out of the office and I think, why didn't I think? But that course that you're talking about sounds like bringing all the pieces together. You can say, okay, now I know I understand this. What's my next step, right? Just give the patient more personal power to have a conversation with their provider. It can take a a part-time job to be your own advocate. And just by getting some of this information and us talking in this group we have a Facebook group, so it's very interactive sort of environment that we can learn from each other's experiences and, and as a group help each other go forward. Yeah, which is terrific. And I, you know, especially we're not out of the COVID woods yet. So online communities can be super, super helpful and supportive and letting people know that, A, they're not alone. I've had that same kind of problem. Now we're going to get, you know, that's great that you do the, uh, the group as well as just being live. Do you do it on Zoom? Is that how you do the live part of it? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, for one, I'm not thrilled not to be able to have one of these injections because I like to biohack. I want to try things, but I'm also glad I don't have any pain at the moment. But I will be recommending you and your work and the organizations that you mentioned. We'll put the the links to the group that you mentioned. And is there anything that you want to leave the listeners with? Give them a little hope. I don't know. What would you like to, how would you like to wrap this up? 
Yeah. So I would say just keep going and just keep learning. I felt stuck. I felt like, why, why am I doing everything right? And everything seems like it's going wrong for a very long time for years. Mm-hmm. So I understand you're not, you're not alone. There's, there's probably millions and millions of people feeling, feeling the exact same. Just keep learning. Just keep looking into these alternatives out there. Yeah. Just, just keep going because there are more options than you're often aware of from the outset. Yeah, that's a really great point. There's a, and that's one of the reasons I do this podcast and the work I do is to bring more alternatives like yourself into the conversation for people. Well, thank you very, very much. I'm so glad that Jenna reached out and got in touch with me. This has been a great conversation. I know it'll help a lot of people. So thanks. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. You're welcome. And listeners, as always, thank you for being here. Be well till next time. That's the end of another episode of the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If there's anything that you heard or hear when you tune in that you think would benefit a friend, a sister, a mother, hey, even some guys, send them my way, would you? And if you've not ever been to the website, rebelliouswellnessover50.com, head on over there. There are resources, things that I don't always get to on the podcast that might help you age better. Be well till next time and stay that way.